Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Andrea Pearson. And on today's show, we've got another Just Just Us episode. We're going to be finishing up answering questions on pre-orders. But before we get to that, I grabbed a few things of interest, I thought, from around the web and people's newsletters. So we're going to talk a little bit about... um, requesting newsletter subscribers to whitelist. We're going to talk a little bit, a couple of tips from the Amazon ads. I attended Mark Dawson's webinar. I'm sure that you got most of the people here might've also attended it. I think there were like thousands of people in there. So I just grabbed a couple of things that might be of interest to mention. And then a little bit about book advances uh, from the, for Twitter people, if you're on Twitter, you may have seen hashtag publishing paid me which was a big, um, everybody's been posting what they got as a comparison. This is all in the Black Lives Matter movement right now, kind of comparing what white authors were getting for advances versus black authors. And everybody under the sun chimed in uh, for different genres too. So I just thought it was interesting. I think probably most of our listenership is self-published, but if you are thinking of going into traditional publishing, it's um, I actually thought it was exactly what I expected to see in that thread. But if you're less jaded than I am or, or maybe newer to publishing, it, it, I think it, it's very interesting. Um, but let's start out, guys, with a... Uh, I just wanted to say that David Gogren actually had a reminder in one of his emails that we should ask our readers to whitelist our address. And he has an example page on his site, or he has a page he uses to do this, to teach them how. And that's why I personally have not done it before, because I'm like, well, where do I send them with instructions for all the different email providers? So we're going to have him on the show. I might ask him if I can just copy his page. (laughs) Is this something you guys are doing? And if so, has it made a difference? I have never asked folks to, to whitelist my stuff. I had previously many attempts that I'd made to sort of uh, uh, get my stuff moved over onto the uh, the inbox as opposed to promotions and stuff like that was just to try to get uh, responses because, you know, rumor has it, uh, the more response, responses your email gets, the less likely it is to be considered spam or promotion and more likely just to be considered a regular role email. I'd never actually asked anybody to do anything proactive, so... I guess I know what I'll be doing for my next newsletter. Um, and I do something along those lines uh, as part of every welcome email and first email that I send to subscribers, you know, my automation sequence. So what I'll generally do is ask them to whitelist me and I give them a link with instructions on how to do that. And it's kind of like what David Goggins got set up. It just tells them how to do it on all the, you know, the various, uh, uh, providers. Um, and then I also ask them to respond to my email because, you know, by responding, it's letting their email provider know that they actually want to hear from me. And that's worked well. Um, I, I get decent open rates and then I, I mean, people do respond to that email. And I usually ask, I usually say something like if you respond, you know, I explain why. And then I tell them just, you know, tell me what you're reading right now, or tell me, um, the weather where you're living, just a simple question that doesn't make them feel pressured to respond. And then it gives them a purpose in how they respond. I, I know you should do that. I've kind of hesitated to because I think I would get quite a few responses and then I would feel compelled to respond to them. So, I mean, I don't know if you've got tens of thousands of people on your list, even if fewer than 10% actually respond or anything, that's looking at a lot of email coming back in your box. But I, I do agree. It's something I struggle with now. I know I get a lot of emails from people that are like, oh, I didn't, I'm not getting your newsletters anymore, especially with Gmail. Gmail hates me. <laughs> so I, there's, I need to start being a little more proactive. I think that might help. And then I've never called my list either. So that is something 
I may also look at, you know, taking out people that haven't responded in like four years or something. I don't have to be really up to the minute, you know, I'm sure there's lots of old addresses in there. And I've heard that that can, you know, I don't know, Andrea, you're more of an email list person. What do you think as far as if you've got old inactive addresses on your list, but the emails are still going out, does that, could it bring down the likelihood that the providers show your email into the, the main box? Um, some people say yes. I mean, there is like this, this little algorithm that email providers set up for, um, for people. And if nobody's opening, then that kind of, it does have like, um, I'm not sure what it's called, but like, it's like a point system that is arbitrary. Nobody really knows what it is. When people aren't opening, it does send a message that says, you know, this person might be a spam place. But I mean, I kind of, I mean, I went through phases where I've cleaned really aggressively and I'm not in that phase anymore. What I usually do now is, um, I'm going to keep my Sendy account open and then I'll pull people who aren't opening it and add, add them to Sendy where it doesn't really matter if they're not opening. And then I will email, um, the people who open actively on MailJet every week still. And then I'll e- email the ones on Sunday. And then I've got, you know, my, new my, my uh, assistant who does all this for me, because I mean, the thing with, with cutting people out is you never know. There's always, um, there's a lot of email providers out there that don't report back opens and don't report back clicks. And the only way you know when they're opening is if they respond or if they actually fill out something that you ask them to fill out. And I mean, like my dad, there's a lot of people like my dad has it automatically set up for any emails on his server to automatically not say they're opening. And there's a lot of ways around that. There's a lot of email providers that are a lot more, um, private than Gmail are, you know, Gmail is Gmail is pretty open with everybody's information. Um, and then the other thing is people come and go in interest. And if they loved your books at one point, the chances of them coming around again, in even a few years and loving your books again are high, you know, I mean, so it just, it just depends on what you are, what you're working on and what you're doing. Um, but like, I mean, you don't have to cut people. You could just, just have two lists. And I know for Lindsay, that's going to be not as fun because she's, you know, she's, she's busy writing books. Right. Um, but like if you are, um, I mean, you could have two lists, one that you, you email them both at the exact same time, but the one you have one where they open more regularly and one where they don't open as regularly. Um, Joe, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah. Uh, I have, I have only once have I tinkered around with calling. It's funny. I use, I use MailChimp. I've been thinking about moving to someone else because MailChimp, their prices went up. And when I tried to find people that were worth, uh, you know, that, that I might want to remove from the list, MailChimp didn't quite have all the hooks necessary for me to come up with a number that I felt was reliably people who actually weren't opening emails. And the way I discovered that was the first round, like what I thought was a useful search to find people who weren't opening my emails. I sent emails to all of them to ask if they were you know, still interested. And an enormous amount of those people responded. Uh, and I realized I recognized some of the email addresses as people who have, I, I've also spoken with outside of the newsletter. So I was like, there's clearly something wrong here. So yeah, I'm nervous about calling at any given time. If I get close to another, like, tier of of like cost based upon how many subscribers i have i might try it again but until then i'm going to try to leave well enough alone and something something to keep in mind um every newsletter provider does things differently so i've been with um four or five including my dad's server i've been with five newsletter providers and every single one of them um different people have gotten my emails and so when i moved from mailchimp to mailer light um 
that was when I had the most, my most active email or, or responders were no longer getting my emails. That was one of the biggest problems I had, but every single provider handles things differently. And so you're not going to have perfect open rates or perfect clicks and people will be getting them from one provider and they won't be getting them from another. And so it's just, it's, it's a problem in the, in the industry. It's not something that we can really control. You just have to kind of go with what works best for your situation and, you know, figure out which provider has the best prices. And I mean, MailChimp, they did go up in price and I wasn't, I didn't like working with them anymore. The changes they made where it was so hard to find all the different lists. And I mean, I didn't like the changes they made and I'm really enjoying MailJet. So that's, that's working well so far. All right. Well, I will keep that all in mind. Most of, I heard, I heard most of it. I had to run and put the dogs away when they started barking. But um, I think one thing with Google too, is that I had my site hacked for a while and didn't know it. It was just kind of running a script in the background or something. And people would tell me and I couldn't find it and I paid somebody to find it. And I think it's finally good now, but I, I wonder if that ties into to like why it may have been considered suspicious. I actually started sending e- emails for my Comcast address from the mailing list just to see, you know, see if my domain name was blacklisted, but good things. Whitelisting. I will probably start implementing that going forward. Um, next thing we wanted to talk a little bit about just a couple of tips from the Amazon ads talk. Um, this was Janet Margo, who I think she now does consulting, but she worked for eight years for Amazon. So, and in the advertising platform, I've actually, I'm just going to say that, that I went ahead and signed up for Mark's course. I had taken it paid like the first year they did it when it was like $400. I did, it was just Facebook ads and I was really, you know, not that big into Facebook ads. So I just kind of lightly went through it. But now I'm like, now that they have Amazon ads and a whole bunch of other stuff, I decided to go ahead and do it. Uh, Since I'm spending money there anyway, I might as well try to make it, you know, get the most bang for my buck. But um, a couple of the tips she had for Amazon ads was to focus on relevance. The highest bid doesn't always win. And I've certainly, I've seen that myself. Like if you're getting clicks and buys, your ad's more likely to show near the top or, you know, the front of the first page of the carousel. Uh, Another thing she suggested was that you, she actually said, spend less time with custom text, uh, which was interesting to me because I've, I've done a lot of ones without any text. You have the option of like putting your copy in there or just letting the book, just the book by itself with, you know, your cover and your star ratings. And I've, I've done it both ways and I can't say, <laughs> you know, whether, the thing with the, I, with the custom text is if you're not really super good at writing copy, maybe hurting yourself more than if it's just the book and the cover. And she mentioned that there's actually no AB testing for that. Uh, if you have campaigns that are identical, except for that custom text, like it, it targets all the same keywords. It doesn't matter. She said, Amazon's basically just going to pick one and display it more than the other. And it's not necessarily meaning that, oh, the text on that one was more likely to be clicked. And the last tip I grabbed from the webinar, I can't steal them all. I don't want Mark to be mad that I'm giving away his webinar secrets. Although, like I said, I think you were probably all there. Um, you don't need to run tons of campaigns for the same book. She was said she was surprised that when she was working there, she would see authors trying everything under the sun to see what worked. Um, but she said, this isn't a real ad strategy. You shouldn't need to do this. If you're keeping relevance at the top of your mind from the beginning, you shouldn't need to have like 20 different ads for one book. So do you guys have any thoughts on that? I, I actually said a lot of things where I was like, oh yes, thank you. Because there's a lot of advice out there that actually is contrary to some of that. 
Yeah, no. Um, one of the things that I mean, I can't remember who it is, but somebody else is pretty big in Amazon ads was saying that he or she creates regularly creates, creates between 25 and 50 new ads a day and sometimes up to 300 a week. And, and Nolan does my Amazon ads and he attempted that and it just, it did not work. It was just so time consuming. And it's, um, most of them didn't get seen and, and shown, you know, and so we didn't end up continuing to do that. I was kind of refreshed to see that like the AB testing and the, and the fiddling with your, your sample text was not recommended because it's almost literally the only thing that really gets effective results on other ad camp, uh, ad platforms is by very carefully tuning your image and your this and your that. And, uh, like it's, useful to know that the skills that you've been using elsewhere to get good response aren't the same skills you should be using here. Like almost more useful than knowing the right way to do something is knowing that the right way somewhere else is the wrong way here. So that's a very useful piece of information to get. Forms all kind of have different, like some people are really good at BookBub PPC ads, you know, and other people are killing it on Facebook. Other people seem to have good luck on Amazon. You know, it's good to know there's options. So whatever suits you, you can do. And um, as I go through the course, I don't want to spend all the, you know, share all the secrets and risk getting blacklisted by Mark Dawson, but I'll try to share in a few tidbits, especially if I do something myself and it seems helpful. All right. So the, the next thing we're talking about before answering the rest of the pre-order questions was um, book advances. And like I said, we're all, the three of us are all self-published almost exclusively. Joe and I just signed with the German publisher and Andrea, I think, have you done some stuff with, you've got, what do you have? I was with the publisher <laughs> in the beginning, yeah. but I haven't, I haven't done any traditional publishing since then. All right. So we're not experts. I'm just going to go ahead and I wanted to share, um, this was NK Jemison, who is a black fantasy author. And she's kind of talking about the racial issue and just I, like, I think it's applicable to everybody who wants to be at all involved in traditional publishing. And I just want to read this. It's a series of tweets. It's be kind of long. I didn't want to like cherry pick or anything. Um, I will definitely link to it in the show notes and also to her site. If you want to check out her books. All right. Uh, and cause, uh, she was one of the people that participated and, you know, shared her advances. And a lot of people were like, wow, she's won all these Hugos and her advances are much lower than, um, like a white debut author doing YA fantasy. So that's sort of the, the preface here. All right. I would just read and attempt not to fumble too much. I did not, I'm not going to censor anything. There's a, except there's a couple words that would, we would have to be explicit if we said them. So I'll just bleep, self bleep. All right. A lot of people are treating advances like the earnings for a book and no. Basically, advances indicate what the publishing industry thinks readers will like in the future. So they are effectively attempting to peer into a crystal ball when they do this. Since these are big corporations and not fortune tellers, some hard facts go into this guess. The author's, the author's previous sales for one, sales of comparable books by comparable authors. But here's where hard facts start to slip and other factors start to slip in. Like, who are my comparable authors? Who is trying a different subgenre of sci-fi and fantasy with every series, a different style, etc. like me. I don't know. How many readers like authors who jump around like that? And this is America 2020, where for the past X years, we've had to endure targeted marketing based on demographics. You've probably heard of TV shows being canceled because they were wild, wildly popular, but with the wrong demographic. Corporations think like this. 
So mostly they're going to try to compare me against other Black author, authors publishing sci-fi and fantasy. I don't write anything like them or they like me, but it happens. So that right there is a point where race enters the crystal ball. Great article on this from a few years back, and I'll share the link to this too. It's an article on comping white. Um, in YA, meanwhile, there was a period where books featuring a tough white girl with a male love interest tended to get massive advances because publishers were all using the Hunger Games, Divergent, etc. for comps. Then there's the question of author marketability. marketability. Marketability is a hot mess. The publisher is considering factors range, ranging from how hot the author is to how good she is at public speaking to how much she literally resembles other popular authors in the field. Hello, another place for demographics considerations to push in. That also includes stuff like what are her characters going to look like on the book cover and who will buy a book with that character on it. It's one of the reasons I've repeatedly opted not to have characters on my books. Also, I just don't like figures on books. I'm weird. So those are three points at which an author's race influences what kind of deal that author can make just off the top of my head. Publishers aren't going, ha, let me lowball this N-word. It's systematic, lots of little biases at many points, forming a big racist Voltron. There's also, also author preference to factor in. Personally speaking, I like royalty checks better than advanced checks. See, the Inheritance Trilogy got a great advance for a sci-fi and fantasy debut, but then the book sold slowly, earned out, but only after years. Those were hungry years. See, when you get a big advance, you don't know when or if more money is coming in. Royalties, though, are more predictable. As long as the book is, in, is selling okay, there will be another check in six months. Amounts will decline over time, but probably a slow arc rather than a crash. I did not fight especially hard for a big advance for the Great Cities books. Why? A combo of things, but mostly I started getting six-figure royalty checks for the Broken Earth, and I just quit my day job, which was terrifying. I didn't need big money right then. I wanted steady money later. So advances aren't an indicator of earnings, and they aren't an indicator of book quality. Like, who could have predicted three Hugos? What then do they indicate? Let's call them an indicator of consumer confidence, specifically the publisher's confidence in consumers. And yeah, racism has an impact on that confidence in a racist industry trying to sell books to a racist public within a racist society. Come on, implicit bias alone will make negotiations harder. There are overly biased gatekeepers too, racist Voltron. So to sum up, advances aren't salaries and big advances aren't always desirable, but F yes, they are an indicator of how racism impacts writers and anyone who says otherwise has smoked tainted weed. All right, um, my apologies for any stumbles in the reading. I just thought it was important to share. If you're in that industry or thinking of going into that industry, you know, I was following the thread the night it came out and there was a lot of, I was actually surprised there were as many six-figure advances to debut authors uh, as there should be. I mean, or as you would think there would be, because these guys, these are people who haven't proven themselves yet. It made a lot more sense to me when like, here's their, their debut advance was smaller and you can kind of gradually see it getting bigger. But I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on this before we move on to the pre-orders thing? I just, I know a lot of people aren't on Twitter and I, I thought it was worth sharing. So there it is. <laughs> um, well, uh, I'm going to read from my notes here. Uh, as the fat, middle-aged white guy on the show, I think my voice is probably the least valuable on this topic. But I'll say that this goes a long way to illustrate why a popular excuse people give for lowballing and undervaluing women, people of color, etc. Uh, basically, everyone but middle-aged white guys, the, the excuse doesn't hold up. 
when people say that they're making choices based upon the numbers, the implication is that the, these choices must then be fair and even handed. But the numbers are based upon past decisions, and the past decisions were based on what was offered before. And if your traditionally published books are, uh, uh, if, yeah, if you've traditionally published books of one type over books of another, and then the numbers are going to support your arbitrary bias that made you choose those original books to begin with. I want to believe that self-publishing is starting to even these things out and giving people the tools to sort of sidestep that sort of bias. But a lot of the public is still taking its cues on what the big publishers are offering. So you see a, you know, you're more likely to buy a self-published book that reminds you of a traditionally published book if you used to read traditionally published books. And uh, the whole basis of writing to market sort of is based on that. And so if the market doesn't reflect what you are writing, then people are less likely to buy what you were writing. And then the numbers will reflect not giving you a higher advance. So it's just one of those things. It's got a very long tail. And whenever you base anything on the past of a, of a biased system, you will continue to be biased until you sort of sever it and start actively seeking out new voices. Um, Joe, if you are a middle-aged guy, then that makes me middle-aged because I'm older than you. And I reject that. <laughs> I have a shorter lifespan than you do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice save. I like that. <laughs> um, so, uh, what I've, what I've noticed, um, on the other hand, I, I agree with what Joe was saying. Um, but there are a lot of readers who are just sick and tired of the same story and the same tropes, the same everything. They won't even read traditionally published books anymore because they're dull. They don't want that same story over and over again. So they're, they're turning to indie books for fresh ideas and fresh stories. And I mean, the problem with traditional publishing is they've got the set idea of what will sell. I mean, she says this, you know, they've got the set idea of what will sell and they don't accept anything that's outside the box. But with indie publishing, you can, you can actually break those molds. You know, you can, I mean, I just, I, I listen to this. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sympathetic, but I'm like, I really wish that she would take that, that movement that she has and that power and just hit self-publishing really hard because there's so many readers that she's not reaching who would be just lapping up what she's got, you know? Um, and then, but like, it also makes me just really grateful that I do indie publish because my books, um, apart from my first series would never get published because they're so, they don't fit the mold. They're like, they're whatever, they're my passion, you know, and, but I found readers who love them. And so, um, traditional books do definitely still f affect us and it's good to watch and learn from them and basically to do, to not what do what they're doing, um, in almost every case, but also sometimes to do what they're doing because sometimes they do understand, but basically they've got, they've been doing this for so many years and they think they understand what readers want. Um, and so they tailor, it's kind of like, is the chicken before the egg? They tailor the audience to fit these books and they tailor the books to fit the audience that they think is out there. And so it's just this big old mess that that's just been going on for a very long time. Um, I do want to say that I love her take on advances versus royalties. I have never heard anybody say that before. And it's, it was refreshing. I was like, she, that makes a lot of sense. I'd never even heard that. Everybody's like lamenting how horrible advances are now, but advances are like, they're, you're expected to cover a lot of things with those advances. And if you don't earn out, I mean, it's just not a good situation. I, I agree with her. I'd rather have a book that makes a lot of royalties and have a tiny advance. Um, anyway, so those are my thoughts. Sort of the flip side of that, though, is if you don't get a big advance, they're not going to feel the pressure to put a lot of advertising dollars behind you. So it's like, I feel there's less pressure on you as an author, but there's that. Maybe these are just the 10 fantasy people we're picking and each paid $5,000 to this year, and we're hoping one of them will 
be so self-entrepreneurial, you know, that they'll take off. And it's tough too with indie publishing. Most of the success stories that we really hear are people writing to market and doing the exact same thing over and over again. So I don't know that self-publishing is always the answer, especially if you're writing the kind of books that write when Hugo's. I mean, she actually sells really well, but it's kind of rare. We've talked about that before, how usually you're doing kind of literary award-winning stuff or you're writing something for the masses that's really going to sell. And it's super rare where you kind of get somebody... I feel like sci-fi and fantasy more, you know, is a field where we're also weird. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're more open. I don't know. I have no idea, but... um. So that's the challenge. Are you writing the kind of book that can succeed with self-publishing or, you know, really succeed at the same level that you could possibly do in publishing? It's always a question. And, you know, I never try to tell anybody that one or the other is better, you know, because some people only want to write one book and then you might as well play the lottery and see if <laughs> that can be something that takes off. Because if you do self-publish, you know, it's you got to write a lot of books, learn a lot about marketing, do a lot of things yourself, and that scares a lot of people away. All right. Do you guys have any final thoughts before we just go on to the nice chill topic of pre-orders? I don't know. Pre-orders are really hectic. They're very, I mean, we could get a really, you know, interesting discussion going where we're really heated. <laughs> well, um, I guess that Andrea, you're reading our first question. So if you want to heat it up, <laughs> you know, go right ahead here. Um, did we want to oh, discuss? Sorry. The, yeah. I tried to skim by it. Um, Last year, one thing I had forgot that we mentioned was that in our benefits list of what pre-orders can do for you is that you can potentially be in the hot new releases lists or on those banners. You'll see the top three listed in the top 100s for each category on Amazon. And then if you click that, there's a whole list of new releases. So with a pre-order, you could potentially be on there the whole time you're in pre-order and as well as the 30 days after your book is released. I think at that point... You, Amazon decides you're not a new release anymore, but um, is it 30 guys? I, f I feel like it's 30, but I've also seen in ads, it has the new releases tag for up to 90 days after your book comes out. I've always heard 30, but I never saw any uh, substantiation. All right. Cause it's just recently, I think this year in ads, they've started saying like pre-order is a banner that can be at the top and new release is also a banner. And I noticed with mine that it was, I got three months as a new release in ads. But anyway, so the point was that's another potential benefit. It's just a little, possibly a little extra vis visibility if you're in that new releases, the top of that. All right. It looks like you guys didn't have anything to add from last week. So now I will pass it to Andrea to read Phoenix's question. Okay. Um, okay. So Phoenix says, definitely interested in hearing what successful ad strategies are used. How would a new author advertise a rapid release? What would be the first book's ad timing on the pre-order and would it basically be used to set the book in the desired genre categories would pre-orders for the following books go live on the release date of the previous book i guess i should answer that since i put myself down to answer that um so i've only done i only advertise book one in a rapid release um if you got an episodic series series with books that stand alone you could advertise the others but ask yourself if, you know, I see people kind of spreading their advertising budget across the series. And I think that you're actually going to get more bang for your buck, more extra visibility potentially. If you kind of pick the winners, you know, in your portfolio and focus your advertising dollars on in that. And probably a book one is always going to be easier to sell, even in an episodic series. So uh, as far as release dates, you have to put... Uh, 
you have to put the next book up on pre-order before you upload the final file for the previous one if you want to get the link for the back of the book. And I have done that. It is a little weird having book two stay out there for a few days before book one is live. But, you know, as long as you're not mentioning the books because you haven't released them yet, it, you know, it's probably okay. Yeah, I uh, broadly uh, agree with, with everything that was said. I have very limited um, experience with rapid release, and my experience has had limited success. So uh, uh, you should listen to other people above me. Um, I will I will say that advertising to the beginning of a series and advertising book one in general is, is uh, definitely the better way to go. It's because if for no other reason, that's where people start reading. And uh, it's hard to get somebody into a series that's got backstory they don't know, even if it's meant to be a, a next entry point. And I don't have anything to add, so I'm going to go on to Phoenix Part 2. <laughs> um, Phoenix says, how would the series covering multiple genres change things? I.e. all books are YA, book one is sci-fi adventure, book two is space opera with a mix of adventure and mystery, and book three is space opera mixed with war. So I, I know that Chris Fox has talked about this and he did this with his kind of uh, space fantasy series. So you could kind of go look at what he's done. Uh, I think shoot, I should have grabbed the, the title. Sorry, Chris, if you're out there listening. Um, he, it's his latest couple of sci-fi series. Tech Mage is the first one. And um, he, he said in one of the talks he gave that he specifically, like the first one was trying to target space opera. You know, I think another one had a dragon on it, was trying to target the epic fantasy because he was kind of doing a cross-genre thing. So I don't know if he really wants me to send people to his door to ask him questions, but, you know, you can kind of look and see if, you know, how successful that was and how successful he feels it was in hindsight. Because uh, my inclination would be to pick one, make this your brand, make it consistent across the covers throughout, probably pick the one that's easiest to market and sell. Um, like my Fallen Empire series is branded as space opera with starship covers, even though there are a couple of books that take place almost entirely on the planets. What you can do is try to put some of the other books into different subcategories on Amazon. Like maybe you're always going to go into space opera as your number one, but then, you know, you can have up to 10, which is would be the whole sci-fi subcategory set if they, they qualified, but you could um, do sci-fi adventure, you know, in another one for the categories. But that would be kind of my inclination would be to just pick whatever is the most likely to that, you know, encompasses the series as a whole. And like when I do my space stuff, I always have the spaceship on the front, you know, whatever the spaceship is, I asked the guy to design on book one is going to be on every single cover. So like I said, even if it's a mostly planetary story for that novel, that's that's my gut feeling on that. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Uh, unless each book has a chance to stand alone, you're probably better presenting them with some sort of consistency, visual consistency with the covers and just overall consistency with the descriptions. You're allowed to put a book in multiple categories and you can use keywords to sculpt your, your discoverability further. So I would recommend keeping one of your categories the same through the entire series, using the other category to... to try to cast the net further and catch the people who might be interested in the newer uh, interpretations of the, of the series as it evolves. Uh, though given how widely defined space opera is, it might be better to brand your series with that if it any, at any point touches space opera and then just make sure the blurb mentions the other elements that are outside of space opera that space opera readers might not be expecting. Um, and again, I don't really have a whole lot to add here other than um, 
so, you know, I work with clients, um, it's a lot harder to help them get their books to sell when the covers and genres don't match each other within a series. It's just readers expect a cohesive um, design and they, they, they kind of crave that. Like if you're in the mood to read science fiction, you don't want to be reading romance, you know, and, or, or, you know, fantasy or whatever. You just, people tend to go for the feeling that they're wanting and it's a lot harder to sell something that jumps between books. All right. Our next question is from Shannon. How do you market a pre-order that isn't a first in series? I have the third book in a series released Monday. I didn't do much for it and I'm sure I should have. So I'd say that most of the stuff directed at pre-orders should be non-paid advertising. If you listen to the, the previous episode, we went through that a bit. Um, as we've said earlier, pre-orders are a harder sell uh, because people like instant gratification and a pre-order is not that. So all the already thin advertising margins of just advertising in general get a lot thinner on, uh, on pre-orders. Uh, so it's better to use the release of the new book as a reason to advertise an earlier book in the series, uh, which obviously wouldn't be on pre-order. And maybe something along the lines of get ready for the new release or see where the story started so that you can, you know, use the new release as a reasonable connection to the to the first in series. Also, make sure you update the back matter of the books that you are advertising with a link to the newest book. It's something that I'm very bad about, but I was surprised I, when I used to use tracking links for that sort of thing, how many people clicked through from earlier books straight to the most recent book, because a lot of people like to buy full series at once. Something else I learned about uh, when I would have a, an ad on the first book, like uh, a BookBub featured uh, ad on the first book. Uh, lots of people would go through and buy like all five books in the series, even though only the first one was being advertised. Sorry about that. <laughs> I was going to ask Lindsay, do you want to ask some of these questions? I think it's just me and Joe going back and forth. Well, I had set it up so you guys would ask them because I talked the first half of the show, but I can ask this one. Um, this one is from Robert and, and his question is, do you ever launch a book or series when you see another author is going to cause an influx in your genre? Um, yeah, this, this happens, <laughs> you know, I think to some extent you just can't worry too much about what other people are doing, but I fully confess that I had a grown moment when I was working on the first three books in my fallen empire series. It's like early 2016 and it was my first jump i was like excited going to space opera both part of it was just that i wanted to write it but i remember also thinking you know space opera is not looking as competitive right now as epic fantasy so uh and then like as i was working on the first book chris fox released he's, he's his ears have got to be burning because keep bringing him up <laughs> he released right to market and you know even though he told everybody in that book like oh, you got to do your own research and find your own categories he was kind of showcasing military sci-fi and i was like oh man all these people now are going to jump into military sci-fi and that's sort of like space opera is always their second category you almost always see you know military sci-fi and space opera so i'm like well that's going to get a lot more competitive um but it is what it is it's just it's competitive out there now that's i i wouldn't worry about what one other author is doing if a thousand other people are jumping into your genre because it's a hot new genre i don't know maybe then you might think about taking a break and doing something else especially if you're a right to market person but I would just do what I want to write and then <laughs> deal with the cards you've got. Um, as for me, I don't write fast enough to make marketing decisions like that. Uh, I'm honestly usually not even watching what other authors are doing beyond stuff that I might want to read and maybe potential cross promotion. Uh, and that's not usually, you know, 
that's naturally only once I've started to think about a release. So when it comes to planning out what my next bunch of releases are going to be, uh, they're just, I can't forecast that far ahead. Um, and I, I pay attention to what other authors are doing only about once or twice, maybe three times a year, basically as a way to check my genres and covers compared to theirs. Um, I've talked about this in the past when I'm watching what other authors are doing, I, it tends to get me discouraged more. And so I kind of ignore them. Um, I think it's smart to keep an eye on it, on things, but things don't move so quickly now where checking every few months is going to hold you back in any, in any way. All right. Next question is from Sarah. Uh, I'm releasing my next series, uh, a book every month. Yeah. I'm releasing my next series, a book every other month. Do you stagger the pre-orders so only two are out at a time, the one releasing next and the following one? Or do you put up more than that? Also, how to build excitement for your newsletter without being pushy? I will answer this one. I would say I usually only put up the next one in the series. They can order that, they can pre-order that, and then I can have a link when that book comes out for the following one. Uh, you remember, maybe if you listen to the first episode, that I was actually having super good success targeting an author who had like six pre-orders up for the whole year. You know, I wasn't, when I made the ads, I wasn't intentionally thinking, aha, I'm going to get all her people that are going to the pre-order page and they don't want to do that. So they check out my book instead. But I mean, that's really like a minor consideration. Other authors targeting you on Amazon ads um, because pre-orders may not convert as well as something that's out and available now. But um, I usually just the next one in the series. Uh, and what was the other question? How do you, okay, build excitement to your newsletter without being pushy? This is where I really like sort of the character interviews, uh, bonus scenes, you know, even just snippets. Uh, my readers seem to enjoy when I just throw up like four or five lines of banter, which is a common thing in my books. So those are the kind of things where you can send it to them and it's something for them to enjoy. And maybe you're not, you, at the end, you can say at the end of the snippet or whatever, you can be like, Hey, you can pre-order the book now if you want to. But I think it's very much not a hard sell. You're like, Hey, here's the snippet. Please enjoy it. Um, I don't like having more than one pre-order live for more than the short overlap between releases or like during release, I should say. Uh, there's certainly reasons to have a lot of pre-orders out. If you're a new author, there's probably a lot of value in bulking up your author page instantaneously and get it by having a lot of uh, books on pre-order. But I've had the experience where I was going to an, like I have as a purchase uh, as a, a purchaser, going to an author's page and seeing that they have a whole bunch of stuff on pre-order and think, well, I'll just come back when they're all out and then I'll binge because Netflix has ruined me in that regard. If uh, I, I will very frequently hold off and then get an entire series in me at once. Uh, and also I should say, because I forgot to include here. Uh, yeah. When it comes to getting people to sign up without being pushy, uh, my call to action in the back of my books is almost always, would you like to join my newsletter? It's usually the only active link uh, in the back of any of my books. So that's, that's the way that I get most of my signups. And, uh, also anytime I'm on social, I'm on social media, uh, trying to engage readers, I will often do similarly. I'll have uh, little snippets that I wrote specifically for that stuff. And generally speaking, I'll gently let people know that they can get this sort of stuff delivered to their mailbox if they sign up here, but far more rarely, almost, almost exclusively I recruit just from the back matter. Um, and, um, Netflix, I mean, stranger things, they did release all of them at once each season. So you could just watch everything in one sitting if you wanted to. And that really worked well for them. It 
doesn't work as well for authors, but, you know, just dumping everything down at once. Um, so I, I kind of, I just, I hooked onto that, how to get, how to get people excited to buy without being pushy. And I kind of got caught up on that. Um, first off authors, uh, we need to get over the fear of asking people to buy. Um, so because being genuine and yourself while being enthusiastic rarely, rarely comes off as being pushy. Um, basically, unless you're a naturally pushy car salesman, <laughs> 95% of the time you won't be selling your own books enough. Um, and if asking someone to buy your books makes you uncomfortable, then I would recommend practice writing it out over and over again until you find a way that is direct, confident, and still yourself. Um, because unless you're proficient enough to release a book a month, you need to learn how to sell. And one of the biggest parts of selling is the asking part. Um, and so I found that munching my upcoming book or books in general in every single email I write helps. I just, I keep readers, um, focus on the fact that I'm an author and that this is what I do. And then that way they know I'm going to eventually be asking them to buy a book. Um, and so if, if you're, um, readers know you're going to say, grab your copy at this price. Well, you can, if you've already mentioned the book, it will be on sale or will be released soon. Um, and this is not directed to Sarah, but to every author who struggles with a buy my book now fear. Um, the desire not to be pushy usually comes from imposter syndrome from working with my clients and, um, just, you know, listening to other authors. And again, I'm not saying this is something Sarah struggles with, but if it's the it's, if it is the case with any of our listeners, um, ask yourselves the following questions. Um, is your book available for purchase on a retailer website? Did it, did you get it professionally edited? Um, does it have a professional book cover? Have people you don't know downloaded and reviewed? Um, and if so, if your answer is yes, then you are an author. Um, have you received positive reviews? If so, you are the right, you have the right to ask people to buy because they have the right to read something that'll entertain, uplift and enlighten them. Um, something that'll bring them joy and, and a good feeling. Um, and so get, I mean, it takes a little while. I mean, I know it, it takes time and some authors don't ever, ever get over it. That kind of that imposter syndrome, but, um, just practice talking, just talk your way through it. Talk to somebody who you feel comfortable talking to. Like I said, write out your answers, come up with something that feels like you that is still asking people to buy without being, um, without being pushy. Um, and that said, if you start asking people, asking people to buy in every single email, you will come off as pushy. So don't just suddenly jump into asking ease into it. And like I said, already make your books part of your regular conversation. Um, and then when you get comfortable to ask them to buy, don't do it every single email. Um, I found every three or four emails is a good balance. Um, and then on the other ones where I'm not mentioning my books as a, as a way for them to download or whatever I offer value. Um, and so I'm entertaining them. I give them quotes that my kids say. Um, um, I like, you know, I just, I, I give them something that I know that they love and then I don't need to, um, worry about when I ask them to buy, it's not like I'm asking them to buy every single time. And I have that same philosophy when it comes to sharing other, re other authors, newsletter uh, books in my newsletter. If you are sharing other authors books in every single newsletter, you are asking them to buy in every single newsletter. And when you ask them to buy your book, it is actually detracting from your ability to ask people to buy. And I, this, that I know there's a lot of authors who aren't going to agree with that, but that's just the way I've seen it. Like, um, in my own newsletter, working with clients and then just talking to readers in general, um, if you set things up where you share every single week and you do that every single time or every single time you email, then it's not going to be as big of a deal. But if you're asking people to buy other people's books all the time, um, and never ask them to buy your books, then that's a disservice to your readers who came there because they like your books. Um, and I think I'm done ranting now. <laughs> and it's good that you bring it up that, cause a lot of us struggle with the hard sell just, and, and we feel like saying, Hey, could you buy my book is a hard sell, you know? And, 
uh, that's why I really like including bonus stuff because it makes me feel like to some extent that's going to sell it for me. Like even if it's just like, here's the preview chapters, Hey, if you want to check it out. And then after they read through and at the top, I usually put the links, but um, yeah, it's a challenge for all of us. We all, I think introverts especially <laughs> struggle with uh, pushing ourselves. Thank goodness for the internet. It's a little easier to do the soft sell on the internet because you can, then here's the snippets, here's the bonus, here's the character interview. But you're very right in that probably they only signed up for our list because they're fans. They enjoyed the first four books in the series and they want to know as soon as book five comes out. And, you know, I've had a lot of people say like, saw the email, bought the book, you know, <laughs> like, and then two weeks later, they're like, oh yeah, I just read the email, but the book was great. So we, it is important to realize that they're probably only on our newsletter because they want to buy our books. All right. Next question is from Kelly. Does genre matter in making pre-order choices? Um, I suspect that genre doesn't matter very much, although it's possible that genres where readers are hungrier and, uh, and are faster at reading uh, are more likely to grab pre-orders quickly since they're perpetually in the fill up my e-reader mode. So, like epic fantasy books that are 200,000 words, chances are pretty good the kind of person who's reading those isn't going to write as soon as they finish the 200,000 words, uh, run out and buy the next one because they just been through an ordeal with you and maybe whereas uh, if they're a romance reader and they're writing these shorter faster books uh, reading these shorter faster books then they'll be like all right i need the next five books because i'm going to be done with what i have by the end of the week so that's my only guess as to whether or not free order has any weight uh related to genre and i suspect joe's correct with that um and you can test out your specific genre and see what happens and then just see what other authors are doing. If no other authors in your genre are doing pre-orders, um, I don't know, just kind of, I mean, you can always ask them, like, why don't you do pre-orders? Ask every other author in your genre why they don't do pre-orders. They're not something to put on your to-do list. <laughs> so what I hear, heard from Joe is his books are really long and an ordeal. So readers are so traumatized afterwards that they're not going to pick up anything else for a while. Darn right. <laughs> It's called defensive marketing. I, I scare people off from buying other books. Um, my only thought with this was that I, you know, I don't think the genre really matters. But if you are launching into a more competitive genre on Amazon, we talked about last week how other stores count pre-orders and give you a boost at launch. I don't believe Amazon does at this point. Maybe it'll change in the future. But you may want to just focus on your launch week, trying to get all the sales in that first couple of weeks so that you have a shot of you know, gaining also bots, you know, getting that extra visibility and hopefully having more of a long tail by compacting everything into the launch week or two. Um, so that's, yeah, I think that's all I was going to say on that. <laughs> I'll pass you off for the next question, Joe. All right. Uh, Jamie asks, when would you recommend not doing a pre-order? And I think you should always do at least a few days of pre-order. Or I should say I would always do a, a few days of pre-order for the reasons that Lindsay gave at this, uh, earlier in, well, in the previous show. Uh, it's You, you want to have the, the links active and you want to make sure everything goes live on the same day and all that other stuff. Listen to our previous show to hear all of that. Uh, the question is how long should the pre-order be? And uh, as we've said, that varies by storefront and by series position and really what your goal is for the book release. 
And I'm one of those people where I don't think there's really any hard, fast rules a whole lot with a lot of marketing and publishing. Just It just depends on your situation and what your goals are. Um, but if there's a certain day of the week that you know from your own data where your readers are more likely to download. So my books get downloaded most on Wednesdays. That's possibly because I emailed on Wednesdays, but I email on Wednesdays because I pull my readers and they tell me to email on Wednesdays. And so... Um, so if you know from your data that your readers are more likely to download and that day is like tomorrow and you want to release tomorrow, not wait, then don't do a pre-order. Um, and I sometimes honestly don't care if, if I'll be losing data and also bots and other things. Sometimes I just want to release a dang book and move on to the next one. And doing a pre-order at that time is, is just too much. Um, I don't know that there's a whole, a whole ton of set in stone rules for situations where a pre-order would be inappropriate that wouldn't already be obvious. Um, if it's a book you know won't sell well or if you don't plan on taking advantage of any of the those pre-order benefits that we mentioned last week, then I don't, I don't think a pre-order is always necessary. I think that if you don't have the book written or finished and you know, you have a busy life or a track record for not hitting deadlines, that may be a time when you don't want to commit until the book is mostly done, or maybe you don't want to commit at all. Uh, you know, if you don't have a big following yet, it's probably not going to matter what your launch day is, or if the book just appears in the store and it's the day you want it or the day after we talked about, usually these sites get them up pretty quickly now, but, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be the end of the world. If you don't do one, uh, I find that at this point I have people waiting for the next book in the series and asking me when's it coming out, when's it coming out. And, you know, each person only asks once, but after you hear it 10 times as an author, you're like, okay, I'm going to go put it up there so they can go order it and not ask me the question. And that's honestly a great problem to have is people caring enough to want to know when the next book comes out. But um, if that's, if you're anywhere and that's not your situation yet, or if it's a book one, sometimes a surprise launch can be just fine. Uh, you know, uh, for the reasons I talked about in the last question, uh, you know, kind of focusing all your sales in the first couple of weeks in the hope of gaining more visibility. All right. A couple more questions, guys. And And I think Lindsay was actually talking about me when she says, you know, She's like, if you have a busy life, <laughs> I'm like, honestly, most people yeah. earlier on, especially are, don't know if they're going to have the book done by September. Like they hope they have a date with their editor in August or July, but I feel like most authors, especially earlier on, don't know when it's going to be ready. <laughs> yeah, no. And especially, I mean, you'd never know, especially when you're first starting out, like your editor might come back and be like, Hey, you need to do another three weeks of revisions on this, you know? And so it's a lot harder to plan around unless you've been doing it for a while and you know exactly what goes into writing a book. Um, okay. So Meg asks, has anyone done a pre-order at free? Is this a good strategy for first in series rapid release schedule or for a first in series rapid release schedule? Um, I've never done a free pre-order. It's an interesting idea, but since I haven't done it, I can't be hundred percent sure how reliable it would be. Amazon's price matching to free is kind of all over the map. And I've like, I often am worried whenever I knock something off free that I intend to be perma-free because I don't know how long it will take to get perma-free again. So I, who knows how that would be handled with a pre-order. Yeah. Um, I would, I honestly wouldn't do a free pre-order, um, because the price of the book on launch day is the price people will get charged. Um, and if you somehow manage to get Amazon to price match to free at any point during the pre-order period, which honestly I've never heard of anybody ever having had done, um, and people order at that price and then Amazon raises the price, which does happen. They do frequently raise from being a, a perma free. Um, those people will get charged and they'll tick them off. Um, you could test it out. Um, but if you do make sure the price on Amazon is as low as possible, like 99 cents, 
then let readers know that they might end up getting charged that amount. And honestly, I just don't think it's worth it. I'm also kind of skeptical if this is possible. I'm not sure though, if somebody has tried it and wants to share on our website or Facebook group, we would love to hear it. Um, but you would not show up in any of the paid lists for Amazon. And it's been a long time. They've kind of hidden the free lists. They're not as easy to find. And we've talked about before how since Kindle Unlimited has come around, there's probably fewer people looking in those free lists because they're everything's free for them with their subscription, basically. And you also, if you start out at free, there's nowhere to go from there as far as like running discounts or sales later on. You you know, are you going to raise the price later so you can lower it again? Yeah, you know, it's, I, I, I'm not saying it couldn't work, but uh, I would be curious if anybody has tried it and let us know. All right. Uh, next question is from Fatima. What kind of marketing slash advertising do you do for the pre-order? Do you have a budget for advertising a pre-order? And do you set expectations, i.e., I want X number of pre-orders? Um, and we've already covered the marketing advertising aspect, but I, I personally, I don't generally set up budgets mainly because I usually underspend and I don't want to spend, uh, push myself to spend more to meet a budget if a book is, isn't doing as well as hoped. Um, and if authors are overspenders and if they'll stick to a budget, I, um, setting one up would probably be a good idea. Um, I don't ever set expectations on anything when it comes to others' decisions, though. It's just too hard to control. Um, back before I sort of fell off the wagon in terms of planning book releases, I would consider a budget for the entire book. So cover, edit, advertising, all of that was one big lump. And my goal back then was to have uh, my most successful... My, my goal back then was to have the full budget of the book paid back by the pre-orders. Uh, if I saw that I was turning a profit on pre-orders alone, that let me know that I could probably afford to take whatever that overage was and pump it into additional advertising, you know, usually to uh, an earlier book in the series because I was not doing pre-orders at the beginning of my career. Um, I had six or seven books neatly pay for themselves during pre-orders alone, and that sort of told me that I was doing the right thing. So I stuck with that through most of my planned launch period. And I talked about this last time that I'm not sure about spending a whole lot of money on advertising a pre-order because I don't feel from, from what I've seen with my books that they convert quite as well. Like your diehard fans will go out and order them. You know, will other people go, ah, that's not out for three months. I'm, I'm not going to even bother with that right now. It does seem that there is some of that out there. So I'd be hesitant to do more advertising. What I'm usually doing with the pre-order is setting up the link, setting everything up so that I can be ready to start putting money in on launch day. Uh, with the exception, as I talked about before, if you want to play with your ad copy for your Facebook ads, but perhaps not for Amazon ads, as we have recently <laughs> learned. Uh, but if you want to try it there too, you know that's an opportunity to try to figure out which of your ads converts so that on day one, you can hit the ground running. Right. Um, and uh, Fatima asked, oh, wait, sorry, <laughs> go ahead. I'm just passing it off. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fatima says, I love hearing data. What is the highest number of pre-orders you've gotten? And what was your Amazon rank when the book launched? Is there a correlation between your most successful series and number of pre-orders you've gotten? What price point have you had most pre-orders at? Uh, all right. So in my case, the highest pre-orders I ever got, I, I looked it up uh, on Amazon 
was uh, to the Karen Apprentice, which was book four of the Book of Deacon series. I I got just under 900 pre-orders on Amazon. I didn't check what my rank was. I should say that uh, talking about correlation between most successful series and number of pre-orders, I don't see a lot of correlation between the success of my series and the number of pre-orders. It's more about the enthusiasm for the book because that book was book four of the Book of Deacon. The Book of Deacon was originally a trilogy, and then there was a long downtime before book four came out. So there was kind of built up interest in continuing the main series. And I feel like that's why that book hit so much harder on pre-orders on Amazon than anywhere else. And uh, price point, price point for my pre-orders has always been full price, which is four ninety nine nowadays. I think uh, I did one the last time I did a wide one for one of my later dragon blood books. Um, I think I got five or 6,000 pre-orders for that one. That was back when Amazon allowed you to do pre-orders, but only for three months. I think I had that one up for a couple months. Now you can actually do a year long one. So if you really wanted to rack them up, you potentially could, if it's a later book in a series that your fans are really waiting for. Um, I, th- I thought I might make the USA Today list with that, which would be kind of a cool thing to do with a full price book. I've done it with like a 99 cent box set of, of my own. Um, and I actually looking back, I'm like, I probably should have actually pushed that pre-order more because that, um, that was probably pretty close. But that series was still f- selling fairly well at the time. For my sci-fi and for more recent stuff, I, I don't really do long pre-orders because I write pretty quickly. So there's, it's, I don't think I've had any over two months. Um, but I've gotten close to 4,000 with the current series, Star Kingdom, that I'm doing. Um, it's a little bit, I think people that do really long series uh, or, you know, if you just, you're killing it and you're selling an early commercial genre and you're doing awesome. I've certainly heard of people getting tens of thousands or at least over 10, 15,000 in pre-order. So that's totally possible. Uh, mine were, these were for later books in the series. So they were full price, I think four ninety nine for both of those. And I did manage to get about 3000 pre-orders with book one, uh, in my death before dragon series at 99 cents in the two weeks it was on pre-order. So, um, I could see 99 cents working well. Like that was hardly even, well, no, I was trying. Cause I told, I talked about how Amazon sent out that alert and I sold like 900 and I was like, Oh man, I'm going to fall off the cliff now. So I was trying to push that, but, um, not necessarily advertising, but just to my readers. So, you know, you can do pretty well if you have uh, readers willing to try a new series, new book, uh, book one with 99 cents. But if you really want the big numbers, it's going to be more reliable in a later book in an existing series. Uh, kudos to all of those out there who make it. <laughs> We're doing 10, 20,000 pre-orders. You're awesome. All right, moving on. Um, and okay, so since I usually only do only do pre-orders on later books in a series and those pre-order periods tend to be shorter, uh, usually just long enough to get a link in the back of the previous book. I don't get a ton of pre-orders numbers. Um, the most I've ever had was around a thousand, uh, on average. I usually get around 500. Um, I don't, like I've said in the previous ep- in the last episode, whatever, I don't push my pre-orders. I use them as a way to catch readers who finish the last book. And then, um, um, to test data. And so I'm not usually telling my readers go pre-order, um, this book, this, this current series has been a little bit different. I've brought it up a lot, um, brought the book up gently a lot saying, Hey, I'm working on it, whatever. And I link to it. Um, but yeah. Um, and for the one series where I had a pre-order set up as soon as the previous book was written, I had a couple hundred pre-orders in the next book. Um, in my experience, like I said, most of my fans prefer to wait until the book is launched. And then for me, price points would be um, I don't know, honestly, like 99 cents and full price. That's what I usually do. And I don't think I've noticed, um, either one of those having more pre-orders. 
All right. Uh, Nikolai says, is it best practice to have a pre-order for the second book to ensure that there's a link in the back of the first book, given a 60-plus day release gap? Uh, and I would certainly do it. Uh, an argument could be made that a 60-day pre-order on Amazon is a pretty long one, and it takes you into the hurting your sales, your launch rank territory. But personally, I would value the potential sell-through more highly because by definition, your next book is later in the series than your first book, and therefore you're already more likely selling to fans than to new readers. I think it's a good idea, especially if you want to maximize sales, if book one's selling one. The only thing is that I, you know, I mentioned this last time that if you want to maximize book reviews on book one or sign up to your newsletter, that may want be what you want to put at the end of the book, at least in the beginning instead. Uh, also, you can change the back matter at any point too. Uh, like say your goal is to get 50 or 100 reviews. Once you get that, maybe you swap it for the, the link to book two. But uh, some people are just always going to maximize sales and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If you're selling pretty well, reviews will come and you can always try to snag them onto uh, the newsletter at the end of the next one. Um, the first thing that people see at the end of all my books is the link to buy the next book. Um, and if that's a pre-order is I just keep that link. It's the exact same thing they see every single time. And then the next thing they see is a link to get my exclusive box set of free stories, um, by signing up for my newsletter. Um, and then after that, I have an author note. It's a very personal note for me telling how things went when writing the book, um, along with any anecdotes I think they'll find interesting. And then my PS of that note almost always asks them to review the books that they've read. Um, I found that following that same setup for each and every single book will tend to grab readers and scramblers. Um, so basically what it does is it gets them to download the next book. And because I follow that same system, they know that I'm going to be asking them to join my newsletter. And so I don't perhaps get as many reviews as I get up signups and downloads of the next book, but I do have my review crew who post reviews. So that's not a big deal. Um, and then by later books in the series, people usually sign up when they see the link to my newsletter again. Um, and I, I, one thing that I've, I've done is I make sure that I have some like what I call a delicious um, enticement to get them to sign up for my newsletter. So if they're going to continue reading, it's got to be to get them on my newsletter. I've got to provide them something that is going to make them really want to, to read, you know, like a short story told from the point of view of somebody that is antagonistic or, or just, just something that's really, really interesting to readers. And you can always ask your readers what that might be and then just have that you know, mention that at the end of your book. Uh, yep. And I should point out that I don't do the review team. I did it briefly for a few years ago. And so that is a reason why I'm like, when I released the book, I'm not, I don't have reviews lined up already. So that's often why I'll be like, Hey, could you help me out by reviewing this book? Cause presumably the people that read it first are going to be fans anyway. Um, but yeah, if you've got reviewers already lined up, maybe you don't need to ask that at all. It's back of the book. Maybe that doesn't factor in. Uh, Nikolai also asked, does a pre-order that sells worse than a normal release result in an overall drag down sales rank due to underperformance of sales history, uh, rolling sales rank weighted in parentheses? Um, this is a good question. Uh, I don't know the answer for certain. Uh, my hunch is that some sort of a distinction is made pre and post launch date, but that's just based upon being an IT guy and knowing that I would have a flag in my numbers for that sort of thing. I really don't know what Amazon would lean on. I'm not going to answer this with 100% certainty either, but I do suspect this is probably true to some extent on Amazon and why it's easier to stick with a launch that with a launch in general, because you have no sales history potentially driving you down than with a promo where the book has kind of been limping along at a hundred thousand or a million in the rankings or whatever. 
Uh, I think David Gogren has talked about this where he talks about a rolling average like for the last 30 days where like the last 24 hours is most heavily weighted. Like that may be 50% of what goes into the sales ranking, but then the previous day, uh, 25% and then going back up to 30 days. So what you might want to do if you do a long pre-order and you're worried about sales rank is to start really trying to ramp things up in the last few days before the release. Same sort of thing if you know you have a book bub, uh, big ad coming up, try to get the book selling at a higher level and maybe you can have a longer tail potentially that way. And I don't have anything to add, just I haven't tested things out enough to know. All right. John says, similarly, is it worth putting up a second book pre-order with a far off on sale date and then pushing it up once the release date is finalized? And broadly speaking, I think it's probably a bad idea to move release dates once they've been set, if you can avoid it. Uh, unless the new release date is still reasonably far in the future and the old one wasn't part of your promotion, so people don't know about it, then maybe it can't hurt. But anything that might lead to confusion with your readers is something you should think twice about. So if somebody was fully expecting to be charged for a book, you know, in, in, uh, September, and then you move it up to July, uh, that might confuse them and confusion is bad. I haven't actually done it. So I going to say, yes, I could see a few people maybe getting surprised by a surprise charge. But then at the same time, I wonder, I think that happens every time anyway. Like if you, I ordered this nine months ago, it's like, and then you forget about it. So uh, I don't know. I, I feel like your fans, you know, readers who are getting like a later book in a series probably wouldn't object to getting the book earlier. You know, that, that'd be my hunch, but I don't know. Anybody have any other thoughts? Probably not, Andrea. <laughs> I was going to say that, yeah, when I pre-ordered your book. And when, when that pre-order got charged, I was so <laughs> so surprised. I'm like, wait a second, who did this? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, for me, I've, I've actually planned to do that several times. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to set this date out in the future. It's just it's a hard goal, this, this deadline that I'm going to make. And of course, I've got plenty of time. So I'm going to have that I'm going to shorten that pre-order period. And I let my readers know I'll, I'll release it if, if I finish it early enough. But what is that, that principle where tasks will swell to fit the amount of space allotted um, to it? I've actually never, ever moved a release a book earlier. And I have done, I have thought about doing it with every pre-order pretty much. And so I honestly, I'm going to challenge you, see if you can actually do it because uh, if, you know, most people can't, so... <laughs> I feel like I have told readers that too. I'm like, well, if I get it done earlier, I can always release it earlier. And I never do. I'm just like, well, I just start working on the next book and glad that one's all ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Okay. Richard says, how do you get BookBub to blast their lists with the pre-order? This is an easy one. You pay them. Uh, the pre-order email is one of a handful of services BookBub has that you don't need to be curated for. It, uh, keep in mind that it only goes out to people who follow you on BookBub, and you need at least a thousand followers to qualify for it. But if you can get a featured deal on another book in a series, and you can follow up with the front back matter uh, of the book in the deal to let folks know about the pre-order, then that's another thing you can do. But generally speaking, you just buy yourself a pre-order announcement email. Right. And I think as of right now, it's $10 per thousand followers that you have. And this is probably going to work best if you're doing a long pre-order and maybe you're trying to hit some lists. So you want, you want to pay them and have it go out 
six months or three months before the book actually comes out. Because once you release the book currently, all you have to do is add it to your library there and they will free for free, send it out to your followers. So I think I've one time paid for the pre-order. It was with Sinister Magic where I was trying to not let it fall off the cliff into the oblivion. And I don't know that it made a, a big bump. I'm not sure I could tell. I, I do get a bump when BookBub, I have enough follows, followers that when they send out the alert, I get a bump typically that's that's noticeable. So it's, it's kind of nice when that's staggered on a different day. You know, you can't pick. They'll just tell you. It's usually your, the week of release though. So, but uh, currently I'm not sure unless you're trying to hit a list or you're doing the pre-order and really trying to rack up a lot of sales ahead of time that you would do that necessarily instead of just currently doing the free one. Who knows if it'll always be free. It may just be one or the other and you got to pay either way eventually. And one thing that I do with um, BookBub when it comes to their automatic, you know, when you, you tell them you've got a new book out, what I'll do is I will have that book get released and then I will claim it on BookBub a few days after it gets released. And then I do, I notice that, that the little spike and everything. And then that way I, you can kind of control when they'll announce to your followers. And it's just, it's nice to have that tell last a little bit longer. Um, and I've never actually heard anything positive from about people using BookBub's pre-order release announcement. Um, most people tell me they only get a small handful of pre-orders, but when you're trying to hit a list, casting a wide net is necessary. Um, that though means spending and losing money on the book that, that hits the list. Um, but also if you make the list, you'll almost certainly get the money back in the new, near future. Um, and marketing is an investment after all. So yeah. Right. EM says, I'd be curious if you have any data contrasting authors or series that never do pre-order versus those who do. I haven't done a pre-order since maybe 2015 myself. And while my results haven't been anything special, that's true for most authors. Happy face. Um, I can only say that in my recent and thus not overly successful releases, I've had very short pre-orders, whereas my more successful years tended to have longer pre-orders. But I really think that's more to do with the market and my popularity at the time than anything to do with my pre-order policy. I've definitely seen that if I don't do a longer pre-order with a later book in a series, it will obviously, for obvious reasons, obviously, <laughs> hit higher in the list and stay higher in the rankings longer because people are buying it then instead of two months ago uh, as far as Amazon. And But, you know, when I do have it, up for like i've got star kingdom up now it's the beginning of june i put the pre-order for the end of september i'll have a bigger payday when it comes out and like i said uh, part of it is just so the fans can go buy it and they know that it's coming out and i don't you know i don't have to worry about uh, answering that question but if you want to stay up higher in the rankings a shorter pre-order is probably better like i've done the shorter ones with the new urban fantasy series just because i'm not getting the covers fast enough to do anything long and you know you do get you're up there higher for longer as people go there and buy it and possibly more people will see that book and be enticed to go check out book one in the series um and from what i've seen authors who are organized and can pull off a long pre-order period so focusing on retailers other than amazon and who write less than six maybe seven books a year you know three to four books a year pre-orders get them a lot of bang for their buck I've seen a ton of authors have huge, well, not tons, but a lot of authors have huge book launches and lots of success without using pre-orders too, though. Um, and so same as with everything else in the marketing business, your mileage may vary, test things out. Uh, I suspect genre habits will play a role in this. So for example, if you always do pre-orders, a book where you don't do pre-orders probably won't perform as well and vice versa. Um, people like consistency. Uh, if you can give them consistency, they'll be more likely to remember you and your books. 
All right. We have a few more questions to go. Sorry, we're going over an hour on this. We probably shouldn't have picked quite so many. I enthusiastically wanted to get almost all the ones asked in the Facebook group, but if you're still listening, hopefully you're still getting some value. Um, the next one is from Rhiannon. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Sorry, Rhiannon. <laughs> I'm curious if more people are skipping pre-orders with Amazon for the time being because of all the glitches they've been having. Had to find mute. Uh, I think maybe people are skipping pre-orders, but um, I try to minimize my pre-order hiccup possibility by doing pre-orders with finished published ready manuscripts, because the thing I was usually most concerned about was them accidentally publishing the unfinished manuscript. It slows down the entire process a bit, because obviously you have to wait until the finished manuscript is done if you're going to do that. But I have everything buttoned up long before the pre-order, so it, it doesn't worry me too much. And it beats people getting the wrong thing. There was a couple of weeks at the beginning of May where they seem to be kind of glitchy with the pre-orders. And I, I haven't heard as much lately. I could always be wrong. I might not just be in the right groups, but it seemed to me like things are probably strained out. I had a book come out during that period and I did make sure to give it a week instead of, you know, the minimum four days, just in the hope that everything would go fine and everything went fine. So if you're nervous, maybe just get it in there with more time to spare than usual. And I haven't had any problems with pre-orders in the past year. I also haven't heard a lot of problems from others, but that's probably more indicative of my head in sand life right now, though. So, <laughs> All right. Related question. Rebecca, has anyone looked into the failure rate and how badly does an Amazon snafu affect release? Um, unfortunately, I think fa failure rate is the kind of thing that's going to remain anecdotal uh, and thus not terribly reliable. Uh, I suspect a failure rate is actually very low. There's just a lot of new releases, and therefore even a 1% or 0.1% failure rate is going to produce a tremendous number of anecdotes. That said, if it happens to you, it may as well be 100%. And you know, talking about how it affects release, again, the only one that I was ever worried about was a bad cop a copy of an unedited book going out. And so that's, that's the only effect that I was aware of when I was making my, my doomsday plans. For me, as a single author who doesn't spend advertising money very much, rather than a few dollars maybe on the pre-orders, it wouldn't be that big of a deal for me. I'd just like, well, announce it to the list again, and here the book is now. The book is live. But I, I've heard stories, and not that many. But if you, you know, if you were doing a big box set and trying to get enough numbers to hit a list, that would be catastrophic if, if you spent a lot of money on the advertising. So. Just think about if that's something you want to do. I, I do think that's super rare and it probably would only happen sometime when Amazon's having some other troubles. Uh, you know, like we talked about this glitchy period. Um, but I don't know, Andrea, have you heard of, I haven't heard of too many people have it just completely disappear or something. Um, I've, I mean, they're really rare. I have had, I've heard um, like instances where authors are doing those mega box sets and they're kind of like, tweaking or twisting the system a little bit they're not like amazon only allows a certain amount in and what they did would they was they would um to make sure they hit the pages read they would have a link at the end of the box set for people to go download the rest of the books from like book funnel insta freebie and that's kind of that's that's gaming the system basically and they had problems with pre-orders but if you're doing things if you're being straight about it you know you're being careful with um how you are handling things then i mean 
honestly, failures, they're very, very rare. Um, you hear about them because it's like what the other two were saying. It's epic to the author who experiences it and they're going to be very vocal about it. But I don't personally know more than maybe one author who's had a problem with Amazon glitching pre-orders. Um, I personally had an issue once with Nook, like I mentioned last week, but I've never had an issue with Amazon. And Sean asked, are there any drawbacks, things you hate about pre-orders? Um, as stated earlier, uh, pre-orders technically spread out your launch spike on Amazon, uh, and they're more expensive and harder to promote successfully with ads. Other than that, I really don't have anything I hate about pre-orders. I've never had one screw up on me, and they give me peace of mind. I like the point in a project where I can get hit on the head and go into a coma, and the book will still come out, and pre-orders make that possible for me. <laughs> um, I'm going to not think about Joe getting hit in the head and going into a coma. <laughs> um, there's not a lot I hate about pre-orders. The trick is basically picking your business model and sticking to it. So figure out what works for you and finding a way to make that work for your readers. And by that, I mean, they expect consistency. And if you do things regularly and consistently, then they'll respond better and they'll just, they'll go to fit what you do. All right. And uh, Nathan asks, I know pre-orders allow a book to show longer than the usual 30 days in the hot new releases for a genre, but does anyone know how valuable this is? Uh, so if you believe in the 30-day cliff, and that's something that's pretty well documented, but never actually proven because Amazon is secret, uh, this is something that will make it into an arbitrarily larger cliff. And that's better. Uh, plus, it gets you that nice little tag, which draws the eye for advertising and stuff like that and in the also bots. So there's certainly some value to it. Yeah. I'm not sure how many people actually surf like the genre, you know, hit the top 100 list for the genre. Like we authors stock those all the time, but I, I feel like if you ask readers, they're probably drilling down or just surfing the also bots or surfing the sponsored ads. That was actually something from that webinar that she mentioned that readers are actually using that carousel, just like another carousel of also bots and surfing them to look for books. So that was interesting. So I don't know how many people are actually looking at like that and seeing here's these three books. I think there might be a little more value if you can be in that top three and be on a little, the little banner. It used to be a bigger banner within the larger top 100 list, but how many people actually click that and then click over and see the other list of new releases? I don't know. It's there's, there's so many things on Amazon where like you believe, I, I believe honestly that the more places your book appears, whether it's on a hot top list, whether it's on a hot new release list, whether it's in also bots for other books, you know, the more the links there are pointing to your book. I remember from my search engine optimization days, the more links pointing to your page, the more authority it would have, you know, in the Google eyes, at least in the olden days, that was a big measure. And it's just the more ways people can find your book, I, I figured the better off you are of chance findings happening. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I don't know, like when I've asked my readers, um, a lot of them don't even know what the hot new release list is. There are certain readers and, you know, certain authors, of course, too, who will check those out all the time. But I, I would suggest that the majority of readers don't even pay attention to that thing. They go by, you know, the carousels like Lindsay was talking about, or like reader recommendations, or they, or they follow their favorite authors. Um, and then I've been in the hot new release category several times and it hasn't ever affected anything. I mean, once I hit it with only a hundred downloads um, and I didn't see a spike from that. So it depends on how small the the list is too that you're on the hot new release for um and then 
I don't know. It don't you don't need to make it a goal of yours unless your biggest dream in life is to your see your book in that hot new release list. Which honestly, that's fine. That's that could be a goal, and it's it usually. I mean, it's fun to see your book in those kinds of lists. Um, and if that does happen, screenshot it and print it off and put it on the wall. <laughs> All right. An hour and a half almost into the show. We started a little late. Maybe it's only an hour and 20 minutes, but thank you everyone for listening. We're going to do some more of these themed topics uh, on, on shows this summer. We might not grab quite as many Facebook questions because I found as I found, it takes us a while to answer them. But if you're still listening, hey, let us know in the Facebook group that you got to the end. We appreciate knowing that you guys are listening and hopefully getting something out of the show. Thank you for being a listener and thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. Goodbye, everyone. See you later. So long, everybody.